hey, we are in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Let me kind of explain this and even why we're going through this. Uh, the book of Colossians deals with quite a few things. There was a lot of knockoff versions of Jesus. Jesus was being um, elevated, but he wasn't being preeminent. Uh, the church of Coloss started because a guy named Epaphras goes back to his home, shares the gospel, people get saved, they start meeting, they start gathering. Epaphras goes to Paul and he's like, man, God is doing something in our city. But there's some things coming up. There's the Gnostics uh, basically going around and saying, listen, you have part of the truth, but not the whole truth. Uh, there was different mindsets with that. We'll get into that. There were Judaizers. We call them Judaizers. They're basically saying, believe in Jesus and keep some sort of the law. Get circumcised. Keep the Sabbath. Believe in Jesus and. So salvation was not based off what Jesus has done for them. It was Jesus plus something else. Paul is basically writing this book to say, we need to know who Jesus is and who we are in light of that. Um, I can't stress this enough because there's so many today, whether it's Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, small like cults, they take the person of Jesus and they just redefine him. It may be in a minor way, but it's a massive way. And so we want to get back to like, who is Jesus? Who is he? What did he do? What does the Bible say about him? Who are we in light of the person of Jesus? Uh, if you're with us last week, we looked at Colossians 1, verse 15 through 18. We studied four whole verses. Um, just to kind of keep you aware of what's going on, in Colossians 1, 15, it's believed that Paul breaks out into like a creed. He's saying, here's who Jesus is. Verse 15 through 20, it's like a poem. Uh, it was believed that the early church used this as a creed that they would recite and say, this is who Jesus is. And Paul, what we're going to look at today, says, this is who Jesus is, and in light of that, this is who you are. So the title today, what we're doing and looking at today is, who is Jesus and who we are? Who is Jesus and who we are? I cannot stress this enough. You'll never really understand um, who you are until you understand who Jesus is. You'll never understand why you're here, what your purpose is, until you really know the person of Jesus. Man, we just want the attention to be on Jesus. You know, when we gather on Sundays, our hope and prayer is that Jesus would be lifted up and draw all men, all women to himself, as he said. There's something about just getting back to the person of Jesus. There's something about for us saying, I now know who I am in light of who Jesus is. So Colossians 1, we did this last week. We're going to do it again this week. Would you stand? I just want to read it together, the scripture, because this is different, man. This is a hymn. This is a creed. This is a poem. Colossians 1. Today, we're going to be looking at five verses. So four verses last week, five verses today. We're really picking up speed. Um, if you would, you're not going to repeat after me. We did that last week. Proud of you guys. We're just going to read. I'm going to read starting in verse 15, but our text today is verse 19 through 23. So uh, I'm going to read verse 15. Colossians 1.15, it says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, then everything he might be preeminent. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Verse 21. Paul immediately kind of jumps into application now. Verse 21. The creed that poem's over. Verse 21, he says, And you goes from Jesus to you and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Continue to stand. Let's just pray. Father, we want to thank you so much for your son, Jesus. We want to thank you that you sent God the most precious thing you had for us, yourself, that, God, it pleased you that your fullness should dwell in Jesus. 
And Lord, we just ask that you would just speak, that you bring clarity, that God, amongst a lot of confusion around the person of Jesus, around a lot of confusion around our identity, that Jesus, you bring clarity to who we are in light of you. And so, Lord, I just thank you. We are lost without you. God, I just ask for the church here, everyone in this room, that Jesus, you would be on the throne of their lives, that you would not just be in, in theory only, in a name only, but Lord, in every way. So we just want to thank you. I want to praise you. There's no one like you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. I uh, was driving my daughter to school on um, Friday. My wife w- woke up with like a headache, so I'm driving my daughter to school. She started free VPK. She's, in, uh, she's four years old, and she goes to school for three hours. Um, and it's, it's a fun little program, free VPK thing. It's like, yeah, it's free. Three hours, we'll do it. And uh, it's cute. She has her little uniform. It's so, you know, it's so weird as a dad to see your daughter, like, so cute, little pigtails. It's that, like, phase, right? Four years old, going to school. And I'm just trying to ask her questions, talk to her, you know, on the way to school. I dropped off her brother before that. And we pull up in the parking lot, and there's this cute little boy that was just walking in the parking lot with his mom. And I'm like, do you know him? He's like, she's like, yeah, he's in my class. And I'm like, what is he like? She goes, that boy always whines and cries. And I'm like, whoa, okay. What, what do you mean? She's like, yeah. He always goes, where's my mommy? Where's my mommy? And I'm like, you're making fun of, yo, she's ruthless. This is my daughter. I'm like, you're, I'm like, well, he probably misses his mom. She's like, yeah, he just cries the whole time. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I just realized I have to pray for my daughter's husband, like hardcore. Um, I mean, she is, she's tough. It's fun. It's fun to hear her thoughts. <laughs> Poor little kid, he seems so sweet. But it's funny how, like, at such a young age, you know, she's like, that's who he is. I'm like, oh my, I'm sure he's more than that. And it's funny, to so many people, we come across a certain way, right? Um, I, you, you could say we wear so many different hats. You know, to my wife, I'm a husband. To my kids, my dad. I'm a pastor, I'm a friend. I'm, I don't know, a guy who plays basketball at LA Fitness. I'm a random guy. Um, it's funny, we wear so many different hats in life. And we have so many different ways in which maybe people view us or see us. And it is very easy for that to maybe become our identity. Uh, it's interesting how in high school you kind of walk through this, right? You're kind of walking through like, who, who am I? How, how do I want to be known? Um, how do people view me? How do people see me? There's such a battle over our, our identity. I think you guys know this. There's a massive battle from a very young age to captivate people's identity. This is who you are. Or be true to yourself. Or maybe you were born in the wrong body. Or we say so many things. The world says so many things about our identity. There's so many identity statements and claims. And here's what I love about Scripture. Scripture spends a lot of time not telling us what to do per se. I know a lot of people think the Bible is about here's what to do. A lot of the Bible, a lot of the New Testament is about here is who you are. And in light of that, here's how you live. It's not so much of um, here's what to do. It's here's who God is and here's who you are in light of that. And I cannot stress this enough, Paul is brilliant in his writings. If you read any New Testament letter by Paul, he does this in Galatians, Ephesians, the Corinthians, Colossians. He's constantly saying, here's who Jesus is. You might think you have a high view of Jesus. It's probably not high enough. I'm guilty of that. Like, we can even say the right things. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is, because it, there's, comes, it's one thing to say, it's one, another thing to live under that and live in that. So it usually goes, here's who God is, here's who Jesus is, here's who you are in light of that, and now here's how you live. And so what we're going to do today in this text, and it's only five verses, we're kind of finishing the creed and then going straight to the application. So if you're like kind of with me, Paul's brilliant, man. He's calling out the cultural issues, the social issues, the idolatrous issues. He's kind of calling all of that out by saying, our view of Jesus, and we looked at this last week. If you missed last week, please go back and listen. It's like he is the image of the invisible God. He is the prototokos, the priority over all of creation. Paul could not be any more clear about who Jesus is. And in verse 8 to 19, we're going to finish that up and look at who we are and who we were and who we are. So the three points today, not to confuse you, it's pretty simple. Who Jesus is, who we were, and who we are. Who Jesus is, who we were, and who we are. And it's so important. You'll never know why you're here until you know who Jesus is. You'll never know what your purpose is until you know who Jesus is. And so he starts off with Jesus. That's a great place to start, right? So we read verse 15 to 18. Let's pick back up in verse 19. We'll look at point number one, who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. Just verse 19. It says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Uh, He says in Colossians 2 verse 9, just so you kind of see the big picture of this book, 
Colossians 2 verse 9, he says, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I want you to hear that again. For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Let's just slow down and make this really simple. I love what Paul is doing. Paul is basically calling out certain ideas back then by using words they would connect it to. So, for example, um, the Gnostics would go around and say, if you want to know deeper knowledge, if you want a fullness of knowledge, we have that knowledge to offer you. We have something to give you. Jesus offers part of the knowledge. Jesus is a emanation from God. When Jesus rose again, it was a spiritual resurrection. It wasn't a physical resurrection. Paul is saying in his body, deity dwells. Paul is one, not shaming the body, but looking at the body and saying, no, Jesus physically rose again, and the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He's trying to say this very clearly, that this is not a spiritual thing. This is not like a God is in me, God is in you. It's like, no, Jesus is God. He's trying to be ultimately really clear, because people might believe, no, God, light isn't all of us. No, no, he's not saying that. He's saying Jesus physically rose again. God himself dwelt in Jesus. God is Jesus in the flesh. So the reason why I do think this is um, very important, Paul is using their own words against them. So I love this idea. Um, They would talk about this fullness of knowledge they had. And it's like, we have something you don't have. Ever been around that? Like, we have knowledge you don't have, and for only $9.99, you can get this knowledge. And it's funny, you ever see those Instagram people who are like, what do you do for a living? It's so ambiguous and so mysterious. And it's like, and I can help you make money. And you're like, what do you, you didn't say what you did. And it's like, I know, click here for $99 a month. And it's so funny, it's this idea of like, we have something you don't have. And this is the Gnostics. It's like, we have something you don't have, and we have this fullness Paul, and I love this, is playing off that word. I love what H.J. Ironside, classic, brilliant scholar, he said this about this idea. Listen to this. He says, the Gnostics use this term, the fullness, or pleroma. Play Never say pleroma. Pleroma. The Gnostics use this term, the fullness, or pleroma, for the divine essence dwelling in unapproachable light, and in a lesser sense, for the illumination that comes when one reaches the higher plane of knowledge. But all the divine pleroma dwelt in Jesus. I love this because basically Paul's pointing out, he says, no, he's using a word they like to use. We have the fullness, the play room. We have this. He goes, no, no, this knowledge that you claim to have is found in Jesus. Everything that they may be claimed, it's found in Jesus. Again, I think this is so essential, so key. He's using the cultural thoughts of their day and he's turning it and using it against them. He goes, everything, the fullness, this knowledge, it's not out there somewhere that they have in a secret group of people. The fullness was made known. God himself was made known. God is not trying to keep information or knowledge from you. We talked about this a little bit last week, but the revelation of God is so key. We can never know God unless God revealed himself to us. God would have to reveal himself to us. It's not like there's just a few group of people that have this deeper knowledge. Paul says that deeper knowledge and fullness came to us. It's tangible. It's relatable. Anyone can receive this because it's found in a person, in a body, in Jesus himself. So I love this because it's basically saying, don't act like there's some spiritual elite. And there's a spiritual elite, and then there's you. It's not like how that, it's not how it works. God came to us. The fullness of God dwells in, dwelt in the person of Jesus, and Jesus made himself known to us. And I love this because it's just saying like, ah, oh, anyone has access. Everyone has access to this pleroma, to this fullness. So Paul's kind of playing, playing off this again in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, was pleased to dwell. Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 3, 16. Great is the mystery of godliness. This mystery, here's the mystery. God was manifested in the flesh. God was manifested in the flesh. It's not a mystery. This mystery it's the word mystery means um, that which was once unknown is now known. God was manifested in the flesh. Jesus is God. We need to understand who Jesus is. Um, there's obviously a lot of texts in the New Testament, things Jesus said as well. Philippians 2, Colossians 1, it might be the best text we have of just lifting up the person of Jesus. Jesus is fully God, fully man. I know you might know this, but let's just be reminded of this. Jesus is not half man, half God. He's God, fully God, who took on flesh, as Philippians 2 talks about. There's this beautiful idea uh, in Philippians. He talks about the kenosis, this emptying of Jesus by taking on. Please stay with me. If this has ever confused you, welcome to the club. This idea of like, how does Jesus fully God, fully man? Paul says it in Philippians 2. Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a man. So here's the idea. It's not so much that Jesus was um, just subtraction. 
I love how one author puts it. It's subtraction by addition. Subtraction by addition. So the idea is imagine, and I, this might be a flawed illustration, but imagine a beautiful, brilliant car worth 500K, whatever. It's that one you see on social media everywhere. Imagine a beautiful car, but then you drive it through like some field. It's just covered in mud. The, the beautiful car is there, but just surrounded by mud. The brilliance is there. It's not wrecked. It's not damaged. Just surrounded by mud. The idea you could say is God took on flesh in Philippians 2. Subtraction by addition. He emptied himself by taking on. Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully man. Jesus is fully God. He's born of a virgin. Jesus doesn't have a sin nature in him, but this is such an argument throughout the New Testament that he can relate to us because he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. It's almost the idea of like imagine a, a battleship can a battleship be attacked by a rowboat? Sure. <laughs> a rowboat can try to attack a battleship, but it has no chance whatsoever. All right, you, you can go in your rowboat up to a battleship and like throw a rock at it. It's not going to work. It doesn't matter. He was tempted in all points of view, yet without sin. It's like, yeah, it's not going to work. He's the battleship. But he was tempted and still without sin. He's fully God. He's fully man. Paul is just trying to introduce this idea of you need to know who Jesus is. The fullness of the deity dwelt in his body. The Gnostics like to claim that the body was sinful material sinful, material is evil, spiritual good. Paul is saying, no, no, look at Jesus had a physical body. It's not that material is evil. Material, God cares about the body. The New Testament idea is so beautiful then and today. Um, it's easy for us to fall into this trap of like, well, I don't need to really take care of my body. I mean, we're all going to die anyways. The, the idea is there will be a resurrection one day. God actually cares about our body. Like it will be me who sees Jesus, but in a resurrected body. When Jesus rose again, it was Jesus, but Jesus in a resurrected body. This idea of the deity dwelt in Jesus, and, and I still, I, that's so hard to fathom, that God, like, let me take on creation. Let me enter creation. Let me dwell in a body. And then Jesus died and rose again. And the body's not evil, as the Gnostics said. He said, actually, the body has, um, has fallen trapped to sin, but it will be redeemed. So I'm bringing all this up to, to so Paul's argument is saying we have to understand the person of Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He couldn't be more clear. Colossians 2.9, for in him the whole, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This idea, too, of the fullness of God, the fullness of God in Jesus. Here's what that means, practically. It's, it's kind of interesting. The closer you get to Jesus, the more full you feel. The further you get away from Jesus, I think the less full you feel. The fullness of God dwells in him. He's pleased to do that. If I could just put it just simply, the fullness of God. The, Paul, Paul says it this way, everything for life and godliness is found in him. Everything we need. So there's something beautiful about when I get close to God, when I get close to Jesus, the one who God dwells in bodily, when I get close to him, I feel more satisfaction. I feel more peace. I feel more joy. Usually it's when I'm resisting <laughs> or doing my own thing. It's usually when I walk away from the person of Jesus that I feel more distant. I feel less satisfied, less joy, because the fullness of God dwells in him. I would just say it's, it's no coincidence that after talking to countless amount of you, it's like, yeah, when I'm actually waking up, spending time with God, seeking him, worshiping him, enjoying him, talking to him throughout my day, not just periodically, I just feel like this. I feel so satisfied. It's like, yes, the fullness of everything dwells in him. Like everything we need, the fullness of God is in him. And the closer you get to him, the more you sense that, feel that, know that. The further you get from him, the more you feel like I'm, I'm drained, I'm empty. And I just think there's something to it in that way. So verse 19, Jesus, God is what he's saying. Uh, look at how he says in verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his, cro of his cross. Through him to reconcile all things, to himself all things. Um, we're going to pick up on the idea of reconciliation in, in just a moment. Um, but usually when it comes to reconciliation, it's like two people have to be in agreement. So the idea of reconciliation is um, we've been at odds. We're fighting over something. Think of an issue. You have a family member issue. And you're like, hey, guys, can you reconcile? It's usually like two parties coming together and agreeing. That is the idea. We have to understand this. Um, we never sought to reconcile things with God first. God has always reconciled with us first. God is always like, let me go to you. I love how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5.19. Paul says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Hear that. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We have to have a different view of God. We see a God who's not like in heaven, who's like, if you want to believe me, believe me. We have a God who's like, I'm pursuing you. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. We have a God who's on the pursuit or run of us. 
And this is so beautiful. It's so, I, I do think growing up, you have, we have this view of God that we're like, we're like on our knees, like, God, will you please accept me? God's the one running to us. And it's like, I accept you. Do you accept? It's like, he's the father who sees his son off the distance and, you know, binds up his garment and sprints and runs to his son. We have a God who pursues us. We have to see that. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Here's the idea. Because the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, he's the only one who could reconcile. It doesn't make sense for anyone else. Again, Jesus' blood on the cross, it's not just some man who died there. It's the eternal God who died and can reconcile us eternally. If just some man died up there, I would need another man. It's like the idea of like a sheep and why they sacrifice sheep over and over and over and over. It was never enough. But the eternal blood of the son of Jesus, of the lamb, it was enough. He's the only one who could reconcile all things to himself. That's why he goes on to say at the end of verse 20, and I love this phrase. He says, making peace by the blood of his cross. Making peace by the blood. Look at that phrase, peace by the blood. Um, the danger in, in me walking through, I think, some of these passages is just, it's very easy to pass over these things very quickly. Um, I would encourage you guys, please be reading Colossians as we're reading this. I mean, we have that giant Colossians thing out there because we want you to, like, we want this to soak in a little bit. Like, please circle, right? We told you that. Like, put things in the margin on that. We, like, we, we left highlighters there and Sharpies on that little banner out there, if you guys know what I'm talking about. Um, we left there. My, our hope of that is just, like, that to be an illustration of, like, we want God to, like, mark up your heart. We want God to do something deep in you. I had to sit in that phrase, peace by the blood. That's one of those things where you're like, okay, Lord, I know, like, I know there's something here I need to meditate on. Peace by blood. Peace by this violent death. This death that you did not deserve to die. Like this blood of the cross, there's peace. This is how it works so often. We know this. Like throughout just history, there's usually never peace until blood is, is spilled or shed in some capacity. It always seems like there's blood being shed and then there's peace. There's this idea of, this is not just um, a, a worldwide thing, that this is like what God actually ingrained and wired into us. I, I find this fascinating, and maybe you've heard this verse and know this, but would you just listen to Leviticus 17, verse 11 and 14? Uh, he says this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for, uh, I've given it to for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. There's something you have to just sit in with this. It's, it's crazy. Like, yes, we have blood pumping and flowing through our body. We're living. Blood is on the move. It's in us. It's flowing. The life of the flesh is in the blood. But there's like a double meaning in that passage. Yes, the think about this. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Yes, we're alive because we have our blood coursing through our veins, man. Like the blood's flowing. The life of the flesh is in the blood, but the think about it spiritually. The life of the flesh is in the blood. There's also, I believe, this, this idea pointing to the person of Jesus, Leviticus 17, that he is the, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The life for us is in his blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. He's talking about atonement. He's talking about the day you take a lamb to God on Yom Kippur, the high priest one day, one time a year, taking this lamb to uh, make a sacrifice for the people's sins. And it's like, because this lamb's blood was shed, the people's sins are forgiven. And it was an illustration of what was to come. One day, there would be ultimately the final lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. It's the whole idea of the Passover lamb. It's, okay, you want the angel of death to pass over, not kill your firstborn? Here's what's going to happen. You're going to take a lamb, you're going to kill it, you're going to apply its blood to the doorpost. And this idea, God's like, so your firstborn lives but my firstborn, in a sense, dies. My son dies. The life of the flesh is in the blood. His blood was shed. His blood was spilled so that you and I could live. Now the angel of death, in a sense, passes over us. And there's constantly this idea. Listen, I get it. This sounds so weird. When you're, when you're not a Christian and maybe you walk into church and we're like singing about the blood of Jesus, you're like, you guys are so bizarre. It's like, we're like, pour out the blood. You're like, what are you talking? Like, it sounds so weird. It sounds so bizarre. You're, you know, but it's, it's unbelievable. Like, we have to sit in this. We go, there is something insane about what can wash away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. There's just so, everything's around the blood of Jesus. Why? The life of the flesh is in the blood. God said this from the very beginning of Leviticus. He's like, you understand this. If you want to live, blood must be shed. How did God make peace? By the blood of the cross. Peace came through this violent, sacrificial, atoning death. This substitutionary death. The innocent one. The sinless one. The one who did not deserve to die, died. I was guilty. 
My blood, my blood deserved to be shed, but he took my place. So we have peace with God now through the blood of Jesus, and that could only happen through the eternal God. It would not be enough. It was just some, a man, another man who died for some cause. No, this is God in the flesh reconciling all things himself. Jesus is not just some man who died for his cause. He's not. Do we get that? He's not just a man who died for some things he believes in. He died a sacrificial, atoning, substitutionary death for you and for me. He made peace by the blood of the cross. And so the idea is this. You'll never know who you are until you know who Jesus is. Think about this. God bleeds. I even just wrote that in my notes. And I, that was like a weird phrase. I'm like, God bleeds. God bled. God, Jesus, the eternal God, bled for you and for me. The fullness of deity dwells in his body. Paul's like, I know the Gnostics try to downplay the body. But you understand, it's because of his physical death and physical resurrection. is not some idea. This happened at a point in time in history. Jesus died and rose again. It's not just some idea or some cool thought. And you should live sacrificially too. That's not it. There was a man who took my place and took your place so we could live with him forever. And it's one of those things in Colossians where, um, you guys, even though, like, I love what Jess prayed. Even though it's like we maybe know this or heard this, it's almost like we have to sit in this a little bit longer. There's, there's some times where I'm like, okay, Lord, I don't think you just want me to read this. I don't think you just want me to teach it. I, how do we do our best to say, Lord, like, speak it deep into our souls. You made peace by the blood of the cross. I am, I'm at peace with God because of the blood of God. I'm the guilty one. My blood deserved to be shed. I'm at peace with God because God shed his blood, the blood of the cross, the blood of a guy who hung on a tree. You think about that, like where it says, cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Jesus became the curse. Jesus is like, I'm going to hang on the tree so you can live. I'm going to die the death you should have died so you can live the life that I lived. It's just unbelievable what Jesus Christ has done for us. Who is Jesus? He is God who died. He is God who bled. He's God who made peace for us. That's who Jesus is. A big part of scripture just saying before you even, it's like how to live or what to do. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Jesus is God. He died an atoning, substitutionary death. And if you believe on him, you can be at peace with God. God is not distant. God is not like, I want you to come and beg. God is like, let me come to you and bleed. That's the God we serve. Not like, beg for my forgiveness. I'm going to bleed for your forgiveness. The gospel is so different than what religion says. Religion says do. The gospel says done. <laughs> religion is like, perform. The gospel is like, it's Jesus' righteousness, not yours, making peace by the blood of the cross. This is who Jesus is. Now I love what verse 21 does. He goes, here's who you were. So who Jesus is, verse 22, number two, is who we were. It's simple, but man, we got to stop in it. All right, listen to this. And you, and you, ever say me, me, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. All right, let's just stop there. I love Paul, man. He holds no punches. This is something people, we don't talk like this anymore today. But he's like, and you, and we'll get to who once were. We'll get to that. But I love, you're alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil. <laughs> okay? That's very offensive to us. I think sometimes the hardest part about like talking to someone about Jesus is just convincing them you are not as great as you think you are. That is sometimes the hardest part of like talking to someone. Because here's what I'll say. If you are educated, if you are wealthy, if you are kind, if you're generous, if you're just nice, this is offensive to you. You're not as good as you think you are. The gospel's amazing that way. It's like, look, I'm educated, I'm kind, I'm nice. I help the person on the side of the road. You are alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, doing evil. The reason why I think this is so important is I, I've gotten some like, conversations with people and like fundamental questions about life. And it's like, I think people are inherently good. I'm like, no, people are inherently evil. Like in my mind, there's no doubt about that. It's like, no, come on, left to ourselves are pretty good. I'm like, read a history book. No. We're not. Have a child, right? It's like, I didn't teach you to steal, hit, and like lie. It's just, it's unbelievable, right? We are inherently just wicked and evil. Paul has to point this out, and he goes, do you not understand who you are? You're alienated, hostile mind, doing, e doing evil, doing evil. Not even just thinking it, not just in your mind. That's part of it. Doing it. I do want us to understand this. Um, it's very hard to appreciate the grace of God and goodness of God and salvation and heaven and eternal life if you don't first realize how wicked you and I are. Like, you have to sit in this for a little bit. Paul's like, do you know who you were? Do you remember who you were? Guys, remember who you were before Jesus. Before Jesus, not, maybe even if you grew up in the church, it doesn't matter. Remember who you were before Jesus was the Lord of your life. Remember who you would be without Jesus. He's like, do you know who you were? You're some pretty messed up people. When people go to church, they're like, I don't like the church. The church is so messed up. It's like, yes, duh. That is the point. We're a bunch of messed up people. Like, welcome. 
Don't you dare think that you're better than that. Like, part of the Bible's job is to say, you're not as great as you think you are. So welcome to the exchange. You're not. And this is what I love about the scriptures, though, because there's something about the scriptures that say, like, I must decrease, and then when Jesus increases in me, it's, it's weird. I love how one author said it. He goes, Christianity is the most pessimistic and optimistic religion in the world, because, like, you think about it, it's like, yes, man, the, we have revelation, we see how things end, but we also have revelation and see how things end. Like, it's kind of, you know, you see the drama, you see the issues, you see the pain, the suffering, the evil, and then you also see the hope that comes from only Jesus Christ. It's weird because I, I do want to stop for a second because um, I know it's very easy for us to get stuck on, and sidetracked on like evil just being out there. Like I, I have sat down and talked with people who have been trafficked and you hear the story, you go, I can't believe that evil exists on earth. I can't believe you were sold. I can't believe you were bought. I can't believe that happens today. If you sit down with people who've suffered greatly from at someone else's hands, you're going, man, there's some evil. Like what, pe- what people are doing right now around the world to kids, there's some really evil people. But we can't think that that's just them and not us. There's a reality where evil's in my heart. Evil's in your heart. He goes, you're hostile in mind. Oh my gosh, that's true for me. In my mind, the thoughts I've had towards people pre-Jesus and since then, it's, it's gross. It's awful. The whole point of this passage, before we get to the good news, who you are, <laughs> you have to sit in a little bit who we were. You have to sit in this idea of, no, no, it's not just out there with some horrible moral monster that's doing some things. Like, it's in my heart. It's in your heart. I have the capacity for that. I have the thoughts that have been inclined towards that. I've done evil deeds. I've done things that have been anti-God, anti-God's will. It's not just, oh, these are some other people. We have to be very careful. Again, I really think that sometimes the hardest thing is if you have all these things going for you, it's very hard sometimes to enter the kingdom of God. It's crazy when you think about this. Because the people who I think are the kindest, nicest, uh, best, generous, loving, wealthiest, educated. I mean, you think about it, sometimes it's like actually you might be in a, in a harder part. Like it's hard for someone. It's, it's like as Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. Sometimes it's, it's so bizarre, right? If you go to a third world and maybe you're sharing the gospel or talking to people, they realize there's a sense of brokenness. They realize there's a sense of need. They realize like, no, no, I'm broken. I messed up. And you're going, man, but the way you do family, the way you do life, you actually have some things we can learn from. But it's bizarre. Like they, they realize, no, I know I need something outside of me. I know that. For some reason, when you have it all together, you actually might be further from God. And this is what the scripture kind of paints. It's like the people, the more who thinks, no, 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 that's for someone else, that's not for me. It's like you actually might be further from God because the one thing that keeps everyone away from God is pride. Like pride keeps more people away from God than anything. There is nothing that keeps people away more from God than pride. Because what God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. As soon as you think I've outsmarted God, I've been I've out-educated God, I've out whatever, that's a dangerous place to be in. There's one thing that keeps more people away from God than anything else is pride. So he says you're alienated, hostile mind, uh, doing evil. This word alienated, by the way, I kind of skipped over this, but it means transferred to another owner. It's this idea that God created us and made us by him, for him. And in a sense, you could say you were alienated from God. You were transferred over from the kingdom of light to the kingdom of darkness. But because of Jesus and the cross, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, we're now transferred back from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So there's this idea of like you were at one point in time alienated from God. I mean, you think about alienation, like think about some kid or some young teenage boy on the fringe, right? And you know, you, you have a heart for that. If you ever see some kid on the, the sideline, like, and like everyone's laughing, pointing, making fun, you're like, oh no, there's something about alienation that is not good. Like it does something to the human heart. I think about back during COVID and everyone's isolated and alienated. I'm like, oh, that wasn't good, man. Everyone's anxiety, everything kind of came, it was just, it was difficult. Alienation does some terrible things to the human heart. And he goes, you were once alienated from God. Uh, I put it down this way, if you want to write this down, our alienation is not rooted in God's abandonment of us, but our abandonment of God. That's what alienation is. Alienation is not like God abandoned us. Like, well, I'm done with you, you sinners. It's that, no, we ate. We decided we wanted to be like God. We could do our, our own way. We're not alienated from God because of God. We're alienated from God because of us. And yet God is the one, again, who's on the pursuit of us. And so he goes, hey, here's who you were, man. You were alienated, hostile mind, doing evil. He could not be more clear of like, you're not as great as you think you are. I, I think I've told this story before, but um, whatever, I'll just tell it again. Uh, I remember I went to a conference one time, and it's like a, you know, just a mega Christian conference sort of thing. And one pastor got up, and his whole sermon point was, you are doing better than you think you are. And I was with some friends, and his whole sermon was, you're doing better than you think you are. And I'm like, I think I'm 
doing worse than I think I am. And he's just kind of beating that drum, and I had a friend with me, and he's like, man, I needed that. I'm doing better than I think I am. I'm like, dude, I know you. I know where you're at in your life. You're doing far, you think highly of yourself. You're doing way worse than you think you are. And you're like, Josiah, you're messed up. I know, I messed up. But I had it, like, that was after the conference. That's how our conversation went. I'm like, you're not, doing better, you're not doing better than you think you are. Like, you're pretty messed up, dude. And I said that laughing, but, you know, obviously a few months go by, and it's like, oh, more things come to light, more things come to light, more things come to light. And you're like, crap, I hate, I hate that. I literally hate that. I hate this idea that sometimes we can, like, feed the flesh and feed the ego, and you're doing better than you think you are. Listen, death to self. If you want to live, die. The way up is down. The, the, the gospel is so different. You want to follow Jesus, deny yourself, pick up the cross, and follow him. It, it's just so different. The way to go up is by going down. It's the, again, it's that I must decrease, he must increase. And this idea of this, I love what Paul is like, you don't understand you were alienated, hostile, doing evil. But I love what he said before all that. You who once were. This was your position. This is where, this is where you stood. This is where you legally stood, actually. The terms he's using, it's, it's interesting. He's using legal terms for what we're going to read next. Your position in court is you're legally guilty, alienated, doing evil, you are found guilty in every way, but here's who you are now. Here's who you are. So let's go to the better news, because you're probably also like point number two. Um, number three, who we are. Verse 22. Look at verse 22. He says, so you're doing evil deeds. Verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay, let's just slow this down um, for a second. I love what Paul is doing, so we, we can't miss the transition. Verse 15 through 20 is, here's who Jesus is. You guys saw the transition in verse 21? The attention's on Jesus, then it goes to you. And you, and you who once were, but now he's reconciled. This is who you were, but this is who you are. You're now reconciled to God. You're established. God has a, a, a goal in mind for you. I love that. God wants to, in order, he says, in order to make you blameless, above reproach, God has a desire for you and for me. So it's, here's who Jesus is, here's who you were, but since Jesus came in, here's who you are now. And so I don't want to pass over that. Basically what he's saying is he's the firstborn, remember this phrase in verse 15? He's the firstborn over creation. He's the prototokos over creation. He's over that. But I love this. In verse 22 to 23, he's describing a new creation. So he's over creation, and Jesus is over the new creation. But here's who you are. You are reconciled. You are established in the faith. So he's saying, here's who you were. Jesus is over creation, but he's also over the new creation. Because you don't understand this. You and I are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. Jesus is not just king of the old creation. He's the king of the new creation. We are part of that new creation. I love that I get to, be, to celebrate and be a part of this new creation. That's who I was. But now it's Jesus in me, as we'll read next week, Jesus in me, the hope of glory. So to point this out, he says again, verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Paul, again, this idea of the Gnostics, remember Paul saying, hey, Gnostics, you think salvation is outside of the body, the body being inherently, you know, evil bodies that has nothing good. He's saying salvation is in the body of Jesus. You're reconciled by his body, by his death, by his physical death. So you're reconciled by Jesus, by his body, by his death, what he's done for you. Here's how one author says it. Reconciliation can only come about if both sides agree to it, and it always requires humility. So this idea of reconciliation, he's come to you, he's pursued you. Do you agree to it? Do you receive it? God is like, I paid the price. I've done it. Do you receive this free gift that's found in me? You're one's alienated. You're one's hostile, doing evil. But because of Jesus' physical death and resurrection, he has now reconciled you. He's brought you to him. And for reconciliation to happen, you go, yes, amen. I believe that. I receive that. I, I take what Jesus has offered and given me. So you see, you're now reconciled. In order, look how he says it next, in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. These phrases, holy, blameless, above reproach before him. What Paul has in mind is the end. Paul has, I think this is the best thing you could do when it comes to discipleship. If you look at a person, don't look at them where they're at. Look at their end. Look at the end goal. If you're trying to spend time with someone, you're like, yo, this person's messed up. I don't know if they'll ever change. I don't know if they'll ever grow. This is really hard. This is annoying. Paul says he wants to present you holy, blameless, above reproach before him. Before him. He's thinking of what? What does before him mean? He's thinking of the day that you and I stand before Jesus. 
He's thinking of what he talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, this judgment day, this idea of you and I will give an account for our lives. And he says, Jesus wants you to stand before him holy, blameless, above reproach. Now, here's this idea. Because we'll look at this in verse 23. I know verse 23, for me and for many of you, for many years maybe, for me it was at least, if indeed you continue steadfast in faith, we'll get to that. And I want to look at not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Let's look at that. But there's this beautiful idea that, no, no, he who began the good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So here's the beautiful thing. Jesus began the good work and will finish the good work. Jesus is faithful. He also calls us to be faithful in light of that. He says, Jesus is faithful. He will present you that day. He will do this before him, holy, blameless, above reproach. This is the goal. I, I think about this for like, you know, you think about the outcome for your kids. What do you want? What do you want for your kids? Or what do you want for your, your life? You're like, man, I, I hope my kids will love Jesus, love others, be kind, be generous. But I, it's like, I hope above all, they just know God, know the person of Jesus. I want to have the end in mind. And he said, hey, this is the hope. The hope is this, that you can stand before God innocent, declared righteous, declared justified. The reality is on judgment day, the gavel should be banged and said guilty, Josiah, all of your sins, of course. But because of what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross, he goes, no, no, you are in Christ. You have his righteousness applied to your account. You are innocent because Jesus' innocence was transferred over to you. The great exchange, my sin, my filth, all that placed on Jesus, his righteousness, his holiness, his perfection placed on me. This great exchange that took place, that in him, in Jesus, the great exchange took place, that he took my sin so I could have his righteousness. And he says, God's hope is that you'd remain faithful to him, remain faithful to the person of Jesus. So here's the point, because now let's look at verse 23, that this verse that traps up so many people. Verse 23 says what? If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. It's fascinating. This, this used to be a verse I would read and be like, yo, if, is this conditional? What is this being, what is being said here? This is something that I think used to like freak me out, but doesn't only because of the hope of the gospel. So let me explain. When you walk into an airplane or anything, you get in it. And my hope is in it. The doors close, I'm in it. And I'm not going to fly halfway through or three-fourths the way through and go, oh, I don't trust the pilot. All of a sudden, I'm going to jump out and open the doors. The idea is like, I, I'm in. I'm in. I'm all in. I wouldn't have gotten in if I wasn't all in. I would have said, no, no, let the plane take off without me. But I got in because I'm, I'm, I'm all in. The, now, he says, when he says not shifting from the hope of the gospel, he, well, here's what he's saying. Your faith is rooted in the person of Jesus, not in your performance. I cannot stress this enough. This is not based off my performance. It's, not, it's based off being rooted in the gospel of Jesus. So I love what Daniel Aiken says, one author. He says, Paul's argument is not about our effort, but our dependence. Please listen to that phrase. Paul's argument is not about our effort, but our dependence. The whole idea of being a Christian is saying, I'm depending completely on the person of Jesus. It's never been about my performance, ever. It's never been about what I do. It's always been about what Jesus has done. So I'm not shifting from the hope of the gospel because my hope is still in the gospel. My hope is still in, in Jesus. I'm a tree just planting my roots. I'm not going to be tossed to and fro. It's not this thing's going to take me out, wipe me out. He goes, keep it, be dependent. I can't stress this enough. Um, sometimes I do think Christianity is misunderstood. It's about what we do. It's about how you perform. It's about being completely dependent on Jesus. I, I do get frustrated when people are like, yeah, Christianity is a crutch. It's like, it's more than that. It's a stretcher. I'm dead in my sins. I need someone to carry out and make me alive. That's nice to say it's a crutch. It's way worse than that. It is weird. The whole point of the gospel is Jesus did not come to make mean people nice, right? The gospel is not, oh, Jesus came to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. That's the gospel. It's not, okay, how can I make these bad people be good people? It's how can I make these dead people be alive people? Be wholly dependent on him, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, rooted and established in him. My hope is in Jesus, not my performance. If you think your hope is in your performance, you, you have to fight that idea. Now listen, remain faithful to Jesus. Why? To be saved? No, because we are saved. It flows out of that state. I don't have to do these things. I get to be a part of this. I get to do these things. I, I get to remain faithful to Jesus. So my hope is rooted in the person of Jesus. Again, it's not about our effort, but our dependence. I love what John says in 1 John 2, if this throws you off, because I understand this can throw you off this section, this verse, but 1 John 2, 19, John is talking about people who've left the faith, and he says, um, they went out from us, but they were not of us. 
For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out from us to show they're never really of us. <laughs> John's point is like, if they were in the faith, they would have continued. It's just this idea, it just, if they're of us, they would have continued with us. They left to show they're never really of us. His whole point is just saying, no, true faith is not I had faith 20 years ago at an altar somewhere. It's I have faith today in Jesus, tomorrow in Jesus. Like, this is the day the Lord has made. I'll rejoice and glad. It's every day you're saying, Jesus, my faith and hope is in you. Faith is not a one-time thing. It's this ongoing thing. Imagine this. Imagine this. Imagine you get married, and you're like, honey, this is the best day ever. We just spent like 30 grand, and it's been amazing. Everyone celebrates us. Yay, best day. And then the next day, you're like, okay, I'll see you in 40 years. Like, no. That does not happen. You don't peace out and go, okay, that was great, honey. Good luck on life. No, you do life now together. And we entered into this beautiful marriage, in a sense, with Jesus. It's not like, all right, Jesus, I'll talk to you next year. No, you entered into this living and active relationship with the person of Jesus. So it's not like we got married to Jesus one day and we prayed some prayer and they're like, I'm, I'm done now, right? This means I'm good? No, that, but a terrible marriage. That's not how it works. I'm going to continue to walk with Jesus and know Jesus. And so Paul's like, hey, you're going to be rooted in the gospel. The gospel is this. The gospel, put simply, is Jesus. The gospel is God. The greatest thing God offers us is himself. We have to stop getting away from, like, the gospel means you get all these. The, go the good news of God is I get God. The good news of God is the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. The idea is, is if you have him, you have everything else. Sometimes we make the gospel heaven. The gospel is heaven. No. No. The gospel is not heaven. That's an awesome byproduct. Thank you, God. The gospel is Jesus. See, again, so much of my life, I think the gospel, is, the gospel was not going to hell. No. No. I think there's so many things we have to fight. The gospel was just going to heaven, living forever. Even when I talk about my kids, they're like, what's heaven like? And, what's, and it's like sometimes we make the goal heaven. The goal is not heaven. The goal is Jesus. And I think if we can truly like get that deep into my heart, the goal is not like, I just don't want to be burning hell for the, the goal is, I just want to know this living God, this good God, this, this God who, who gives common grace, this God who lets me enjoy the things he made, even though there's sin and wickedness, and it's a result of my doing, it's a result of our doing. This God is so good and loving and pursues me. I want to know the God who cares so much for me. He knows the numbers of my head. He pursues me. He loves me. When I sin and fall again and again and again, he pursues me and says, I love you. You're my son. I love you. You're my bride. I love you. Come on in. This is your identity now. See, I want to know the God who just takes me for me. I want to know the God who's like, I, I just love you because you're mine. Uh, you know, we've, again, parents, you get this. It's like, your kids are like, why do you love me? Just because you're mine. <laughs> There's, you can't, I can't actually name a reason other than you're mine, right? It's like, you're mine. I love you. I'm all in. There's nothing you could do that would change that. God's like, do you not get that? My love for you. I'm all in. And there's something so beautiful. The, the gospel is not heaven. The gospel is not you don't go to hell. The gospel is Jesus. It's Jesus. The hope of the gospel, your faith is rooted in Jesus. This is so much less of a text to preach on, but a text to experience. Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know that there was a man who lived a perfect, sinless life, performed miracles, people hated him for his life that was different? They ended up crucifying him. He ended up rising again. People gave their life for that truth. They're not ashamed of that. They went from being cowards and afraid to saying, no, I saw the risen Jesus. Kill me. Kill my kids. It does not matter. I saw the risen Jesus. Even though I was afraid of this five minutes ago, I've now seen the risen Jesus. This is now something that we continue in a couple thousand years later, saying the person of Jesus, the historical person of Jesus, is God in the flesh, God who came to save, that we would never know God if God didn't come to reveal himself to us. God came to reveal himself to us. We found the deity in the bodily, in the person of Jesus. And if you believe on him, you are now reconciled. You're not alienated. You're now brought in. You're now a son, a daughter, a bride. You're now brought into the body of Christ. You who once were these things are no longer these things. These things that once defined you no longer define you. Jesus Christ now defines you. Stay rooted in the hope of the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. The only thing we can say is believe on Jesus. Man. Believe on, receive the person of Jesus. The idea of Christianity is so simple. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hey, that's like your vows. And now you're walking, you say, okay, I believe. I, I confess Jesus, you're Lord. And I believe fully that you rose from the grave. And I want to enter into this living and active relationship with you. I want to walk with you. I want to put my faith in you today, tomorrow, forevermore. I want to be rooted and established in the gospel of Jesus, not shifting from other things. I want to be a tree planted by the river of water that brings source, that brings life. Jesus is the good news. You don't get heaven. That's great. That's awesome. I, I want heaven. That's a byproduct of Jesus. 
just knowing Jesus, believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus. This is the hope of the gospel. This is why Paul's like, this is why I became a minister. This is the best news ever. It's no longer about my performance. It's no longer about what I do. It would never be enough. It's no longer about my performance. It's about what Jesus has done for me. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to end by just worshiping and communion. You guys have communion, I hope. If not, um, we can still try to get it to you. But here's the idea. We just want to spend some time saying, Jesus, thank you that you made peace by the blood of the cross. This is what Paul said. He made peace by the blood of the cross. Because of the cross, we can be at peace with God. Not because of what we've done or I've done, because of what Jesus has done. So here's what we're doing. The worship team is going to come back up here. Let me just be really clear with this communion. Hey, guys. If you believe on Jesus, take, eat, celebrate, remember the person of Jesus. If you do not believe on Jesus, you can do so right now in your seat and say, you know what, Jesus, I confess you are Lord. I believe in my heart you're God. Take, eat, celebrate this wonderful meal that says you and I at one time were at enemies of God or at war with God, but now God calls friend. He's brought us in. Why? Because he made peace by his blood. So as you hold this little cup, and in the cup there's a little cracker, you say, Jesus, thank you for your body that was broken for me, that the fullness of God dwelt in his body. And we look at that cracker as just as this reminder, God, everything I need was found in the person of Jesus. And you broke yourself so I could be made whole. Thank you for your body that was broken for me so I could be made whole. Thank you for this juice that we hold that reminds us of your blood that was shed because the life of the flesh is what is in the blood. The life of the flesh, the life, eternal life is in the blood of Jesus. So we, we look at that and say, thank you, Jesus, for your blood that was shed, that I can have life. So this is a time not to be somber or sad. This is a time to celebrate the broken body of Jesus that makes us whole, the blood of Jesus that reconciles us to God, that makes us at peace with God. So we're just going to say, hey, quietly, hold that, pray over it, thank the Lord for it, celebrate him. Say, thank you, Jesus, for your body. Thank you for your blood. Um, I'm going to stay up here over the side, singing, worshiping, praying to myself. I'm going to encourage you guys, just take this, eat drink. Remember Jesus. Celebrate Jesus. You are at peace with God because of the blood of Jesus, because of the cross. God says, you're not an enemy. You're my friend because I pursued you. I, I died for you. I bled for you. You don't beg for forgiveness because he bled for our forgiveness. <laughs> we just say, thank you, Jesus, that we have forgiveness because of your blood. So we just remember the person of Jesus. And if you want to sing and join in worship,